Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast of weekly Catholic conversation from the editors and co-founders of The Pillar, www.pillarcatholic.com. I'm J.D. Flynn, editor-in-chief of The Pillar, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, it is nice to see you. Hi, J.D. How are you? Well, it's immaterial how I am. Let's get started, shall we? Okay. I'm assuming we're just going to go right to the the obvious headline of the week. Well, there... <laughs> This is the sort of week, Ed, where the obvious headline of the week could be any number of things, 10, 12, 15 different things that you might have in mind. So you tell me which obvious headline you have in mind to start with, and I'll tell you if I agree. Well, I think there's really only one story that um, you know comes right across the, the intersection, which is our sweet spot of canon law, um, religious church news, and secular news. I mean, there's only there's only one story that that ticks all those boxes this week, right? I presume you want to talk about the Pope's new instruction on lectors and acolytes. Oh, JD. No, I want to talk about Gwen Stefani getting an annulment. I think that we have talked in the past in another lifetime, in another universe about Gwen Stefani petitioning for a declaration of nullity. Um, and now she has one, but I must admit, I can't remember who the uh, fellow was or anything else. I, I suppose it was probably that she had been married or had attempted marriage with Gavin Rossdale of the band um, Bush. Bush. That's right. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe. In. That I, was the band, right? I, I don't know. I honestly and... know nothing about Gavin Rossdale or Bush, except that he was married to Gwen Stefani. Well, he attempted well, marriage with Gwen Stefani. It sounds like it, he did. As it turns out, he only attempted marriage. To so Gwen, Gwen Stefani. Stefani is uh, Gwen Stefani for those of you who I don't know. Gwen Stefani. I don't know what to call you if you don't know who Gwen Stefani is. You don't know who Gwen Stefani is. Uh, You know, Gwen Stefani is the former lead singer of um, No Doubt, who became uh, a pop star in her own right by singing songs that sounded like the songs she sang with No Doubt, but without No Doubt. And um, and, uh, is, you know, probably a problem. Do you think Gwen Stefani fits into the category of global icon? I would say late 90s pop culture icon. Yeah, I think that's probably I think that's probably right. So Gwen Stefani is a a late '90s pop culture icon. Uh, um, uh, I'm just a girl in the world, and et cetera. Um, and uh, and was married, uh, attempted marriage to the uh, lead singer of lesser uh, lesser known '90s rock star Gavin Rossdale of the band Bush, and um, and that marriage didn't work out. And then if I remember correctly from the last time we discussed this, Gwen Stefani started practicing the faith. Is that right? She was baptized a Catholic and maybe raised in the faith. And then she started practicing the faith. Uh, it, it's my understanding from the scant reporting that I've seen on the, the narrow focus of our interest here, that she's always taken her Catholicism seriously. Still say sources close to Miss Stefani. Um, but anyway, the, no, the naufragium of the marriage to Mr. Rossdale, uh, was more or less in 2015, I think. And the a petition for an annulment was apparently filed in 2019, at which point I think we we may have discussed this at some point in some venue. Lifetime. But yeah. where, do you remember where, what tribunal was competent to hear the case? I do not. And I have an interesting question about this, JD. So here's the thing. Um, I, I, I read courtesy of a, a dear friend and presumably uh, a listener to this podcast. Uh, I was made aware of coverage of this event in, in Vanity Fair this week. And uh, apparently 
they they received or are about to you know they've received informal notification of the decision and they're waiting for the formal paperwork but it's you know it's been decided they got an affirmative they got an affirmative from a quote vatican tribunal now i'm trying to understand if this is necessarily what? you know poor um sort of poor relay and you know poor use of language here and then you know they mean a a church well, just tribunal. bad reporting well i mean it is vanity fair i i don't want to i don't want to pass judgment on them but um <laughs> anyway i it, it's on the quote was vatican okay I, i've just done a little googling here a, a source told us weekly magazine Gwen was told the decision was made by the Vatican Tribunal. She'll be receiving the notification in writing in the next few weeks, but it's official. Now, um, the, only, the, only a tribunal of the Apostolic See is competent to hear the case of a head of state. Um, but Gwen Stefani, though head of the state of Nidi Ska, is not, I think, formally speaking, uh, does not fall into that category. So the tribunal that would be competent for her case would be the tribunal of the place of attempted contract or the place of domicile of one of both of the parties. Et cetera, et cetera. Unless there was a first instance decision that was appealed to the Rota, though. Well, that's what I wonder. So the only way that this might be plausible, I suppose, is uh, that uh, that Gwen was told the decision was made by the Vatican Tribunal is if, in fact, she petitioned for a declaration of nullity at first instance and um, got a negative decision. She didn't get the declaration of nullity. And then Gwen Stefani made an appeal of that, not to a court of second instance in the United States, but directly to the Roman Rota. The reason why I'm skeptical about that is because according to this little link that I've clicked, it was reported in March 2019 that Gwen Stefani had begun the formal process to petition for a declaration of nullity. And it There's seems no extremely unlikely to me that she got a negative <laughs> and then an affirmative from the rotor in that time. I, I think yep. she got a I think she got an affirmative at first instance. That that seems likely to me. Although I, I was uh sort of reading around the species facti as, as near as I could come up with them. And I mean this this may have been a straightforward case. I don't know, but it, it nevertheless would have had a lot, of, a lot of moving parts because, I mean, the coverage that I read in Vanity Fair and you are reading, I presume, in Us Weekly uh, suggests that it is Us Weekly, right? Not U.S. Weekly. Uh, this is a publication. I, I have no idea. I, okay. I, I no, no clue. Um, but it, it, you know, it's portraying very much as something that Miss Stefani wanted to pursue, so that uh, her subsequent attempt at marriage with Mister Blake. Sheldon? Lake Shelton, her co-star of a television program called The Voice, which I think is a television program in which celebrities wear masks or costumes and then sing and people try to guess who they are. Well, that sounds riveting. Um, but it, <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's what it is. Miss Stefani is apparently attempting or planning to attempt marriage uh, with Mr. Sheldon. But he himself, as near as I understand it, has uh, been at least civilly married and divorced twice. Oh. So he's going to need some, I mean, presumably part of uh, Miss Stefani's tribunal experience will have included um, Mr. Sheldon getting his two previous unions some maybe kind of lack of forms. Maybe, maybe he's Catholic and they were lacking form. And here's Very why I think be. he might be Catholic. I've now moved over to Vanity Fair. And I see here that Mr. Shelton has built a chapel on the grounds of his Oklahoma ranch for the ceremony. Um, uh, now, I, Is it a chapel though, J.D.? No, I was just about to say. That's I, I, not what a chapel is. Well, actually, no. So that raises a good question. I actually think it might be. So there are designations of sacred spaces in canon laws, you know, and I know. And um, among those designations of sacred spaces are um, churches, properly speaking, and then oratories, oratories. which the faithful have the right of access, and then a category called private chapels. 
Um, now, ordinarily, private chapels, which to which the faithful do not have the right of access, and to which certain in which certain sacraments can't be celebrated without the permission of the diocesan mm -hmm. bishop. Ordinarily, one finds private chapels perhaps in the home of the bishop or in a rectory that's not in immediate proximity to a parish or in a religious house, perhaps. Um, or in some other uh, place that is affiliated with a Catholic reality. But it is not the first time in my life, Ed, that I would have heard of um, a, a person of some means uh, securing permission to reserve the Blessed Sacrament in a suitable space that is designated a private chapel in, uh, on his own private property. I, I suppose it's possible, although I... I suppose it's possible. I would be curious if someone who does not appear to be Catholic, um, or at least according to the write-up that I was reading, Advani very, very much treated the necessity of a of a wedding um, recognized by the church as very much something he was going along with for the sake of Miss Stefani's religious convictions. I would be surprised if that person received permission for well, but again, again, if the chapel is uh, if the private chapel is to be on the property that will become the property that is their common home. And she's very devout. Now we could find out. So, so this ranch, according to Vanity Fair is in Oklahoma, and there are two dioceses in the state of Oklahoma, which means that if we really wanted to roll up our sleeves and get into this, we could start looking into whether either of those, I mean, I suppose first we could see if we could find out where the ranch is. JD, but I make you this promise now, if we can definitively answer whether or not Gwen Stefani and Mr. Sheldon have an actual chapel on their property, that will be the most read article on the pillar for a month. I think that may be so. And and truthfully, we only have to call two, two people. Right, exactly. Now we have to do that, to be honest, Ed, we have to do that before this podcast drops because what I don't want is to get scooped, right? To give a lead away on this podcast and then to get scooped by someone who listens to the show and then at their own news outlet, you know, beats us to the punch. So we're going to have to finish up this podcast and then start making some calls to Oklahoma. We can do that. I mean, to be honest, if we do get it and we do publish it, someone's going to rip us off because because <laughs> that's how it are, goes. Some people are doing that right now. Don't think I haven't noticed. Oh, indeed. Um, let's just talk, since we're talking about this in a very technical sense, uh, let's just say in 30 seconds or less, um, what a declaration of nullity is. A declaration of nullity is a judicial recognition by competent church authority that an attempt to contract marriage between two otherwise qualified parties failed in some particular aspect that um, some necessary quality was lacking either in the parties or in the exchange of consent and thus no valid exchange of consent in fact took place and so it's not that the marriage is dissolved or um, overthrown if you like but is declared to never have happened even though the parties spent some period of common life uh, living under the innocent and um, blameless yeah yeah, innocent and blameless presumption that they were in fact married, although they, it turns out they were not. They were not, and and I just want to unpack what you said there uh, about the about the, the 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 reasons for declaration of nullity. Generally speaking, there are two: um, either the person was lacking some capacity to exchange consent, in other words, to make the full, free human act of matrimonial consent, the person had some psychological, emotional, or even developmental, you know, maturity issue that that prevented them from being able to exchange consent, or in many cases, the object of their consent was not. Um, marriage as such. So in other words, if I say you know, marriage is a partnership for the whole of life um, between a man and a woman oriented towards the procreation of children and the education, the procreation and education of children and the common welfare of spouses and marriage has properties like unity and indissolubility. And if I say I do, 
at the at the altar at the time of my wedding, but I intend um, not to stay in the marriage for the whole of life or intend um, not to, to reserve to, my, to myself the right to be unfaithful um, in, in accord with my judgment. Or if I say I do and intend to reserve to myself the, the right of the exchange of the bonum prolis, in other words, if I say I do, but it's entirely up to me whether or not we have children, um, then I, there has been some defect in the object of my consent. It, in another way, though, if I am um, profoundly pressured or afflicted with a rather serious psychological malady, um, then it may be that there's a problem with my um, capacity for consent. Um, there's an interruption to the cognitive, evaluative, votive process. Right. That the, the constituent elements of a valid act of the will are that you can understand what it is you're doing. You can analyze and apply the facts of yourself and the circumstances to this sort of abstract understanding of what you're doing, and then you can truly will it. Now, another issue could be that I lack the capacity to assume the essential obligations of marriage for some psychological reason. So if I think I'm a cat, it will be, if I genuinely believe that I'm a cat, it will be very difficult for me to enter into um, a, 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 in the interpersonal relationship of marriage. And um, more than that, if I think I'm a woman, um, it will be equally difficult um, for me to enter into the interpersonal um, relationship, uh, to an interpersonal relationship, which is constituted by one man and one woman. Very much so. Indeed. Okay. Having covered sufficiently, I think. So, so, um, so Gwen Stefani, what I wanted to do here was figure out a way to make a um, just a girl joke, you know, because it's Gwen Stefani's big song, but I haven't worked it out yet. So that's fine. We'll come back to it if we need to. I don't, I would dispute that that's her big song, but okay. What do you think here? Well, don't speak. I think we've thought about this before. No, there's don't speak. Is I mean, okay. Either okay, so either so either just a girl or one of the more modern Gwen Stefani songs like uh, that B A N A N A S one or whatever. No, it's don't speak. Don't speak is the er Gwen Stefani song. That is, I I I, I can't tell you how wrong you are about that. But it's neither here nor there. We're going to move on. Um, and uh, Hollaback Girl, you know, that's the one that I was thinking of. Um, anyhow, or Rich Girl, remember that one? These are all, these are all post No Doubt, and I would, I, I would argue inferior. <laughs> What's the point of post No Doubt, really? Well, no, what I find, I mean, first of all, her, you can't argue that these subsequent solo career hitlets, so to speak, um, in any way compare with the sort of culture-defining role that Don't Speak played for the mid-90s. I mean, that was, it, it literally was, I think it, if it wasn't the biggest song from 1995, I'd argue it was one of the most culturally endearing and certainly one of the most evocative songs of the decade. That I think that might be true, but I think the problem for us in terms of trying to argue about this is that I think we are largely ignorant of the cultural touchstones of the last 15 years. I mean, I don't think we're sufficiently poised to evaluate whether uh, subsequent Gwen Stefani songs have been as big of cultural touchstones as were her No Doubt songs in our wayward youth. That's possible, but I would argue culture stopped in 2005. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about what didn't stop. On Monday, Pope Francis issued a motu proprio um, that changed uh, one canon of the Code of Canon Law, but changed, but but drew a lot of headlines for a change of one canon of the Code of Canon Law. Um, the Pope made a change to canon law that would permit uh, women to be admitted to the church's formal ministries of lector and acolyte. Um, and uh, a lot of people, I think, were taken by surprise by this because when you hear lector and acolyte, you think, well, at my parish, there are women who read at mass all the time.
time. Or I think an acolyte is kind of like a grown up altar server. And I've seen women in that role at my parish or at the cathedral or whatever. So I think a lot of people were surprised to hear that the Pope now made a change that permits women to be admitted to the church's ministries of lector and acolyte. Um, but there is a distinction, Ed, um, that's clear in canon law, but not, I think, always clear or clear at all in the life of the church um, for most people between um, sort of fulfilling the function of reading at mass and being on the, lec the lector schedule uh, at, at mass or fulfilling some um, function of, of service of mass in, in, in the way of a sacristan um, and being on the schedule for that. There's a distinction between those things and the formal ministries of lector and acolyte um, in, in the church and the, the role that they play in the life of the church. That's right. I mean, the, 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 the ministries of lector and acolyte are, are very ancient in the church. They, you know, they are, uh, they're certainly somewhat evocative for people because they of course were part of what we used to call minor orders minor in order, the church yeah. mm -hmm. that as one um, entered and progressed through the clerical state, one would begin with lector, acolyte, exorcist, uh, and then you'd move on to subdeacon, and then eventually, you know, sacramental ordination beginning with deacon priest and eventually bishop if you make it that far. So, you know, well, the the change to Canon 230, which really was just the deletion of a word, it used to say very laity, as I understand now it. Says it. Laity, right. Now it just says laity, sensitive lay men. It's just lay. Um, it, 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 it's one of those things that um, I, I think in, illustrates um, an interesting tension that sometimes arises between the law of the church and the lived experience of people in the church. And, you know, as you say, a lot of people will be turning around going, wait, I don't understand. I've been seeing women serve and read at mass for as long as I've been alive. How is this a change? And you'll have other people who will say, oh my God, this is, you know, clearly the apocalypse and the this opening of the door. This is the worst change that's ever been. And yeah, yes. in fact, I think you'll have people who fell into that first category. I didn't know anything about this. And then upon discovering that there was something they didn't know and it has been changed, will nevertheless instinctively react as if the change is a terrible thing that might well signal um, the end of all that is good and holy. Uh, yes. I suspect that there, there may be people who fall into that category. Um, but but the distinction is, uh, is, as you say, important and not always lived out. We have people who serve in these ministries, and then we have um, these formally instituted ministries of lector and acolyte that are connected to these former stages in priestly formation called the minor orders. And uh, up until 1972, a person who was in formation to become a priest or uh, who thought he was in formation to become a bishop, maybe, um, would, have, uh, would have received along the stepping stones of seminary these, uh, these steps, porter, exorcist, lector, acolyte, not in that order. And um, and then in 1972, uh, Pope St. Paul VI said, look, this, uh, the Second Vatican Council has already said, this is not really connected to the way that we're doing priestly formation. And this has become sort of its own thing with its own set of um, issues. And we're just going to simplify it by saying we have these two ministries called Lector and Acolyte. And yes, they will be steps along the way towards priestly formation. Um, but it will be in which a person will be sort of formally instituted into these ministries in the church. But it would also be possible for dioceses to formally institute men in the parish to these ministries of lector and acolyte. And largely that was never really taken up. There are a handful of dioceses in the U.S. that do that, that sort of install a man as lector and acolyte. And I'm told it's largely for the idea of sort of encouraging men to spiritual leadership in the life of the church. But because it wasn't really taken up in most places and because it's not wholly restrictive, that is to say people can serve in those functions without having the ministries. It's just not something that has been sort of seen anywhere. Well, this is, I think, equally true of the the function of extraordinary Eucharistic minister. Yeah, I think that's true. Which, you know, is is its own 
institutional role in the church, which one can be formally instituted in. Uh, and, you know, along with that is expected to come a certain amount of theological formation and training, at least a bare minimum necessary to understand what you're handling when you're handling the Eucharistic species. Uh, but, you know, very often people just sort of act as though they were of the institution of an extraordinary Eucharistic minister, when in fact they're doing so just on an ad hoc basis, uh, albeit regularly in, in their parish. And so it's the, it's the same way. And I, you know, I, I can see a way in which uh, opening up the these uh, these ministries of lector and acolyte to to the ladies, um, you know, it is in one hand a sort of recognition of what effectively is going on in parishes in many places anyway, but uh, at the same time, hopefully, it will result in the in in a in a better formation and um, a more universal appreciation of the seriousness of these roles. That rather than everything being done sort of ad hoc. Sunday to Sunday, or just sort of because you know, with a nod knowing from from Father, that you know maybe we can have a little more um, formal formation for people who are filling these roles in in parishes, and I think that would be no bad thing. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think there are two other reasons why this may why this has happened, and I think they're both important and and both to talk about uh, to talk about both because they're outside of our American context. So I think it is true that this could lead to sort of greater awareness of these ministries and better training and sort of better use of them here here on the good old U.S. of A. But there are two other reasons. One has to do with um, the Amazon, and one has to do with Deutschland. I'll talk about the Amazon, and then you'll talk about Germany. Um, is there really a difference? <laughs> Yeah, in the context of the Catholic Church, is the Amazon not a wholly owned subsidiary of the German Church? The the Amazon being uh, the the Amazon region and the Amazon Synod being uh, being underwritten by the uh, by the coffers of the German Church. I think that is true. Nevertheless, there are two distinct sort of practical reasons that uh, why this the Pope may have made this change. Um, the one for the Amazon is simple. Um, there was a lot of discussion during the uh, the Synod on the Amazon that took place last year um, about uh, about the role of women in leadership in in the Amazon region and the importance of women in leadership in the Amazon region. And there was talk about women in the diaconate. But one of the things that was made clear is that the Pope said at the end in the document that he issued, and, and actually throughout there are people who said this, is that um, there are communities which don't see a priest for a very long period of time. And those communities that don't see a priest have need uh, for leadership, sort of um, spiritual leadership, pastoral leadership, organizational and practical leadership, and then people to do things like you know, organize sacramental preparation and and uh, and bring the Eucharist from you know from other places where there might be a priest to the community, etc. And there was a lot of discussion about the the idea that it might be important in some of these communities uh, to uh, to to better empower women to be participative in those roles. And uh, and uh, the Pope said, in fact, there needs to be a way in which the Church can sort of commission, can give women a stable, functional. Um, designated titled role in the church, he said, look, these people, you know, the, the push for women in the diaconate is actually a push for some kind of commissioning, uh, a recognition of women and a, and a sort of um, mark of endorsement, a blue check mark, if you will, that says in acting in this role, this woman is acting sort of under the ages and with the approval and on behalf of, in a certain way, um, the, the church, qua church as an institution. And, uh, and um, in a certain way, the Pope has said that this, uh, that this decision, which would allow women to to enter these ministries of uh, lector and acolyte may better sort of equip them and empower them in those ways for ministry in places where there aren't priests. And I think that's true. I, I wondered if here in the United States, maybe it was you who asked about this, but 
if here in the United States, there are some parishes that don't have a, a resident pastor. They have a priest who's responsible for the spiritual leadership of the parish, but they have a, a layperson who's hired to be sort of the day-to-day leader of the parish with 517-2 parishes. As I was about to say a 517-2 parish, yes. If you if you're interested in the number, and um, and I and and I think it was you who raised the point. You know, it may well be here in the United States even um, to install a, w- a woman who is the day to day leader of a sort of five seventeen two parish as a lector or an acolyte may better sort of empower and reflect the reality of her leadership role in that in that community. It's certainly possible, and it will be interesting to see how um, this permission and this is an important thing. It's a permission. Yeah, it's a permission that this the the change to the law is is a broadening, but it's something that is done, um, you know, it, it basically, the motu proprio says, you know, in line with uh, such uh, liturgical forms is, uh, is determined by the bishops conference. So in this case, the USCCB, that this is something that diocesan bishops can do. Right. It's permissive. It's not prescriptive. It's not. And actually you know, bishops conferences first have to set criteria and the criteria in the United States for of uh, admission to the minist- installation in, into the ministries of lecture and acolyte. Right now, the U.S. Bishops Conference has that criteria, and one of the criteria is being a man. So um, presumably, insofar as I can understand the process that the Pope has laid out, the conference at its next meeting will have to have a vote on striking this uh, this established qualification of being a man before dioceses could begin to install women as, uh, as lectures and acolytes. That would seem to me to be the thing that makes legal sense. Um, it seems that way to me too. But what will actually happen, one never knows. What will actually happen is that certain bishops will get the bit between their teeth and carry on outside of the law. Because probably, probably so. Now, if it's but, your favorite subject and you're a bishop, you'll you'll be happy to continue either um, praetor legem, shall we say, <laughs> yeah, uh, rather than law. Yes, uh, but uh, if it's a subject that you don't particularly enjoy, uh, like penal law, for example, you might. You might not pay scrupulous attention to even the law that is there already. Now, um, before we talk about Germany, I just want to talk about what the pushback is, because I've sort of said what the argument that's been made sort of in favor of this is. And I think it's fair to recognize the pushback. The pushback oh, yes. that, I, that I've heard thus far is uh, is uh, is from people who say, wait a minute, these ministries of lector and acolyte do have a connection to um, uh, uh, the minor orders and uh, priestly formation. And, you know, if you, if you um, get rid of that and you open them up to women, you sort of dilute this step towards priestly formation and, um, and, uh, and sort of undercut the tradition, the sort of historical meaning of these realities. Um, then from people in dioceses that do have installed lectures and acolytes who are not in priestly formation, I have heard the pushback. Well, wait a minute. Um, it is hard to encourage uh the spiritual leadership and sort of liturgical participation in these ways of men in the parish. Um, and this might undercut that if it's sort of like, um, it's if, if a lot of women want to do it, it might undercut that. Those are the same arguments that I think are often used as pushback for the um, the service of girls at the at the altar. Yeah. That is those, true. Those are the pushback arguments. Now there's one other- I, And I think there's, I, I don't think they're entirely without merit right. either. Yeah. You know, I, I think I, there's, yeah. there's something to that. That doesn't I, that doesn't mean you know the the legal change that's been made by Pope Francis isn't entirely within his scope as supreme legislator right. to make. Um, you know, this is one of those things where, where there's a disciplinary change in the church. Reasonable people can disagree about whether or not they think it's the right call. But it doesn't stop it being the call. Right. That's exactly right. I think there's something to it too. But I'm not sort of. I, I feel in this way as I've often felt in sort of debates about. Um, altar girls is if I don't, I really don't, I really have not taken a position. It's totally a prudential judgment. I can see the arguments on all sides of it. And at the end of the day, it's not a call that I have to make. So it's just not in my mind, all that important that I land on a position. 
Um, I definitely do see the arguments. I just, um, it's not that I don't, I, I, I'm not saying I don't care. It's just that it's not, I, I don't have to make the decision. So why do I have to take, why do I have to take a position other than to see the merit to the various arguments that are made? Well, I mean, that's fair. I, I myself have um, instinctive opinions on, on these <laughs> things, uh, which, which, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to have and hold and cherish and nurture as my very own. Uh, what's unfortunate for me, uh, sorry, not, it's not unfortunate for me. What is unfortunate in my opinion is that people are unable to often in the church and in conversations about these things in the church, separate the fact that they feel strongly from something about something um, from its, you know, sort of therefore it, it's uh, it's importance right. at a dogmatic or theological level is just because you find something aesthetically good or bad or practically useful or not useful. Um, does, you know, the one's personal emotional investment in a, in a subject does not impart to it um, theological significance. And that is correct. I, I'm, I'm able to, to know and understand that. And so I feel perfectly happy saying I, I find some ideas uh, very nice and appealing and I find others not at all nice and not at all appealing. And, you know, I, I can go that way. And, you know, frankly, I wish there were more JD. I wish there were more people like me out there. Maybe I could have rational conversations like with to them. Say, is to say, yeah, even if you say, yeah, I hold an opinion about it. The great liberty is to say, I hold an opinion about it, but I see that it's not sort of a, a dogmatic issue and, uh, and I'm not the decision maker. So Exactly. Know, it is what it is. And um, other people can disagree with me. Yeah, I guess I would offer, uh, yes, I think that is a great liberty. Before you go to Germany, I would offer, though, I think what is probably the strongest argument in favor of it, and of this, and it's this. And again, I'm not even saying, I'm not weighing the relative mar merits of these arguments, but maybe I'll tip my hand a little bit. Um, the, the strongest argument in favor of, of it is an argument that Pope Francis makes, and it's this. Um, he says the distinction, the critical distinction in the church is between um, uh, with regard to sort of our liturgical roles is between those of us who enter the liturgy as, uh, uh, being baptized and those who enter the liturgy being both baptized and ordained. And the priest has a unique and important and critical role in the holy sacrifice of the mass. And the deacon has a role in service to that role. And the bishop functions fundamentally as a priest in a celebration of the mass. Um, and laity have a function in the mass too, and that's sort of full active conscious participation. Um, this is I'm kind of going a little bit beyond what Pope Francis said, but laity have a, have a role in the mass too, and that's full active conscious participation. And the church most concretely says that full active conscious participation for laity is, is interior. It's the, it's, the, um, it's the interior unification of our own wills and desires and sacrifices and experiences with the sacrifice of the priest on the altar and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. What, what it means to fully actively consciously participate in the mass is mostly um, uh, mystical or, or, or um, dispositionally towards prayer. And so if that's true, then these other things, which are sort of extra participative for laity, you know, um, it seems to me that, that, that there's a distinction that says, well, we can do them because we're baptized um, uh, and we're not ordained. So, you know, we can draw, we can highlight because we're baptized, we can exercise these things and participate in the life of the church in these ways. Um, and I think in a certain way that emphasizes what we're not in the mass too, which is to say, or that should be correlated to an emphasis in what we're not in the mass, which is to say, but we're not priests. And so our, our experience and role in the mass is not to sort of ape or imitate the, the priestly role. Which is I to say, that all of this is to say that if J.D. were the Pope, um, the priest would do the thing and the rest of us would um, be in the pews during Mass. And if J.D. were the Pope, encyclicals would be thousands of pages long. <laughs> no, they wouldn't because I'm just working. Yeah, they out. would. I, you forget. I see your copy. I <laughs> Wow. 
Wow. You're a storyteller, man. <laughs> Live with it. What I Germany. was going to say. No, well, hang on. No, you, you don't, okay. no, no, no. You don't get to just, you know, go off on one and then decide we're going to move on. I want to have my two cents. We decree uh, Germany. See how good I'd be a Pope. Go ahead. Say it. Yeah, I'm sure you would. Uh, <laughs> no, what I was going to say is I, I, I am sensitive to the argument that says um, service at the altar, particularly in the function of acolyte, is, um, is, is, something that provides a particular physical proximity and hopefully spiritual devotion to the Eucharist and can be useful in um, getting young men who might be discerning a vocation to the priesthood uh, to, to pay, uh, to, to come closer to the sacrament in the function. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through learning to serve at mass, um, discover either a priestly vocation or, or, or something like that. And, and I think that's fine. Um, and I, and I think there's a lot laudable in that. And I think I, I certainly know a lot of priests who discovered their vocation through serving at the altar and everything. And it was, and, and it was through learning how to serve mass that they discovered their, their call to, you know, be a priest who could celebrate the mass. And I think that's wonderful and beautiful and certainly a, a truth learned from experience. Um, but I, I, I think it's important to distinguish between that and um, a sort of school of thought, which says, you know, well, yeah, but I just don't like girls near the altar. And, you know, they're two very different things. Like, you know, this is not about, it's not that um, men qua men should be acolytes. uh, If your argument is that it can be a source of inspiration and gradual education through practicality towards a discerning a vocation. So if you're not in a position to discern a vocation to the priesthood, for example, because you're married, then I would argue there's, there's no greater reason for you to be an acolyte than for a qualified woman, at least not theologically. Right. I think that's quite right. Yes. Uh, Germany, and then I'm going to answer a piece of trivia that has been asked to me about this change of the popes. Okay. So Germany, I would argue that it is one possible interpretation because the question, of course, is why this change? Why now? Why? You know, I've seen more than a few people say, oh, there goes Pope Francis again. Why does he have to, you know, make a mess? Make a mess to to quote a phrase that Pope Francis himself coined. Um, You know, it wasn't broke. Why do you have to, you know, do something which is going to stir up why you uh, strong always opinion. Yeah, and why why do things that are guaranteed to stir up um, strong opinions? And and I think um, you know there are there are several possible interpretations for for discerning the Pope's uh, you know what what caused the Pope to make this decision and the timing for it. I think one strong candidate for a plausible explanation is of course the rumbling. Uh, synodal process underway in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, we reported uh, last week, I guess it was, on um, the head of the German Bishops Conference, Bishop Georg Batzing, uh, who has made another public statement, or made, I should say, another public statement uh, over Christmas and New Year's, uh, underscoring his, uh, his support for the so-called binding synodal process, which the bishops in Germany are undertaking with the Central Committee of German Catholics who, let's just say they're a very problematic organization in some of their membership and the ideas that they officially hold and promote. Anyway, the purpose of the synodal way is explicitly laid out to reconsider and to propose changes for immediate implementation uh, to all range of matters of church teaching and discipline, including um, the blessing of same-sex unions in church, the admission of women to sacramental ordination, uh, first as deacons and then later to the priesthood, um, the the uh, allowance of 
divorced and civilly remarried couples to receive a sort of uh, union blessing for their for their second uh, canonically invalid, sacramentally invalid union in church. Uh, these are all just an end to clerical celibacy. These are just some of the some of the proposals which they've very explicitly laid out as what they want to um, discuss before arriving at what is effectively a predetermined conclusion recommendation right. and then bring it in with the force of law. And they've been right. told by Rome on more than one occasion, you may not do this, what you, what you are calling a synod as a sort of branding exercise is in fact attempting a particular council, which you don't have permission to do and you don't have power to enact from. So right. knock it off. And the sort of standard German response is to say, well, we understand, but Rome just doesn't understand what we're up to. So we're going to carry on. Um, and so Rome has found itself in this uh, sort of delicate dance with the German bishops where Pope Francis and um, people like Cardinal Mark Willett, head of the Congregation for Bishops um, and the Pontifical um, Council for Legislative Texts keep pushing back on what the Germans are doing and the Germans keep saying, we're gonna do it anyway. Uh, the CDF have also had to wait in a couple of times, uh, but nobody wants to overly provoke the other. The Germans don't seem to want right. to go so far, at least yet, that Rome is obliged to take definitive action or, you know, actually disciplined individual. But so for example, in his most recent comments, Bishop Patzing didn't say, we must have women priests. What he said was that he personally found the church's rationale for its definitive teaching on the reservation of priestly and sacramental ordination to men alone to be less and less convincing. Right. Um, and reiterated his support for the exploration of the idea leading to at least the diaconal ordination of women. Anyway, so part of the way that Rome has tried to stall the German bishops, or at least uh, forestall open conflict with them, has been to play for time, more or less. And we've seen, for example, on the question of uh, a female diaconate, um, we've seen Pope Francis now institute two different uh, commissions to study the historical role of mm -hmm. so-called deaconesses in the apostolic church and, mm -hmm. and what that actually looked like. Uh, the first one didn't come to any uh, firm conclusions or consensus. And Pope Francis weighed in and said that he, you know, it was his understanding from reading the commission's work that, you know, while there was this thing of deaconesses, it was closer to sort of the blessing of an abbess today than it right. was to resembling any kind of sacramental ordination. And after the Amazon Synod asked for, you know, another conversation about the possibility of women deacons, Francis said, all right, well, we'll have another commission. Sure. Yeah. And so there's this sort of, you know, preservation of the status quo while sort of walking in place, if you like. And I wonder if this isn't a way of providing um, a mechanism for the German bishops to sort of let out their enthusiasm for um, liturgical investiture of ladies uh, without actually coming near the, the, you know, the church's actual immutable teaching on the reservation right. of sacramental ordination to men alone. And it's... Um, and I think also, I think that's quite right. And I think also in a certain way, separating those who say, perhaps, you know, who say, uh, well, I, as I observe the church, I do think it would be good for there to be a means by which the church better involved women in, um, in the church's sort of inner life. And even those who might say, and I do think there should be a way in which the church is more intentional about involving women in the church's liturgical life. And those who say, um, I want to jump right past uh, sacred doctrine, or I want to jump right to sacred doctrine and overturn it by having the ordination uh, of women to, to, to holy orders. And so um, those who, you know, the, the German bishops are, if the German bishops have been appealing with a, with a, uh, been appealing to people who think that women should be better included in the life of the church, which I would agree with, um, 
but suggesting that the solution to that is a doctrinal is a doctrinal reversal or um, uh, or just rejecting Catholic doctrine, um, they uh, the Pope sort of uh, drawing this distinction allows. Uh, or, or the Pope's making this allowance kind of allows people to draw a distinction between uh, a legitimate response to their to that desire and an illegitimate response to that desire. And it forces, I think, any German bishop who is really sort of looking only for the reversal of Catholic doctrine to sort of more concretely you know, uh, call out his reality. He can't hide behind, but there's no liturgical place for women, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think if this is... Um... If if this has played a role in, uh, f- you know, the the Pope's decision making process for for announcing this change at this time, I'm afraid it's it's unlikely to cut much ice with uh, with uh, the the more frenzied participants of the Der Synodal Weg. But um, but it may cut away those who are sort of sympathetic in principle to their arguments. But sure, I, I, unfortunately, I just think that the those people that you're describing are in the minority. I think that's I think that's almost certainly true. Yeah. The leadership of the Central Committee of German Catholics and prominent um, synodal, I forget what they call the sort of subgroups, um, synodal fora. Yeah, I think that's leaders, right. synodal, yeah. um, which is sort of their breakout groups to challenge different areas of church teaching and <laughs> discipline. That's um, yeah. what it is. Yeah, I, it's I, exactly I don't think I'm mis- yeah. yeah, I don't think I'm mischaracterizing it anyway. But the leaders of several of these groups and the leadership of the Central Committee of German Catholics called Pope Francis, and I'm I'm not paraphrasing. They used the word coward. Mm-hmm. Uh, in response to his uh, conclusions at the end of the Amazon Synod, so you know it's not they're they're not going to be uh, they're not going to be long bought off with um, an interesting and doctrinally and theologically sound uh, new avenue for the better inclusion of women in the liturgical life of the church. But I think you're right that that is um, an important, uh, uh, a, pro- a potentially an important motivator of the Holy Father on this. Okay, before we move from this topic, I'm going to answer a question that has been asked to me a number of times, and it has been asked to me by those who, uh, by some, uh, more than 10 people have asked me this question, believe it or not, but it is a question that has been asked to me by some people who, um, who, who love and avail themselves of the extraordinary form of the Mass, um, which I myself sometimes go to the extraordinary form of the Mass, but I don't know that much about it. And as I've said on this, I've, I've said on this and prior podcasts many times, I don't know that much about liturgy altogether. So a question has been asked of me, and I have... Uh, not knowing anything about it, I went to an expert who might know something about it and got an answer for you. But I'm not going to explain the answer because I don't. Uh, all I did was go to somebody and ask him. So, what has been asked for me many times is um, whether or not there is a provision in the rubrics of the extraordinary form. And by the way, if the, litur- the extraordinary form isn't your thing or you don't know that much about liturgy like me, this is just going to take a second. The question that has been asked to me a number of times is whether or not there's a provision in the rubrics of the extraordinary form that allow an instituted lector to read the epistle in the absence of a subdeacon. And the person um, fulfilling that role, an instituted lector reading the epistle in the absence of a subdeacon, is um, the so-called straw subdeacon of the of the uh, of the of the mass of the uh, of the extraordinary celebrating the extraordinary form. A number of people have asked me precisely that question. Here's the answer that I have gotten from an expert uh, in in these matters. Here's the short version of the answer, which I'm reading to you. Any male can serve and vest as a subdeacon in the absence of an ordained person, but a non-ordained or straw subdeacon may not wear a maniple. So again, um, any, any male can serve and vest as a subdeacon in the absence of an ordained person, but a non-ordained or straw subdeacon may not wear a maniple. 
Now I have the longer answer. Longer answer. At a Misa Cantata, which has no deacon or subdeacon, an ordained deacon, subdeacon, or layperson may chant the epistle. If American bishops reticent to institute lectors because of the former no girls allowed clause, now start instituting lectors, instituted male lectors. Oh, excuse me. At a Misa Cantata, no deacon or subdeacon, an ordained deacon, subdeacon, uh, or lector may chant the epistle. If the American bishops have been reticent to institute lectors because the former no girls allowed clause now start instituting lectors, instituted male lectors might start more frequently chanting the epistle at the extraordinary form masses. But the answer essentially is that um, male lectors can chant um, the uh, epistle at a misa cantata, but um, if, if women become lectors, the rubrics of the extraordinary form still say that um, only men can serve as straw subdeacons. And again, that is the answer to the question that I have been given, and I will not be taking any questions on that answer because I do not know very much about these things. All right. I, I would like on behalf of our listeners, JD, to thank you for that answer. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Father Peter Matola, for providing that answer to our listeners. Ed, let's move on, shall we? Let us move on. Okay. What are we going to talk about now? Well, we've had another week of development in Vatican finances. We have indeed. And um, I, I want to just say one thing before we start. Many of you I know uh, care deeply about the saga of the Vatican financial scandal. And when I say many of you, I mean very few of you. Uh, but <laughs> I, I think many people care about it. I, I know that many people care about it because everywhere I go, which these days is not many places, but everywhere I go, people ask me about the Vatican finance scandal and they tell me that they think our reporting on it is important. I think what many people don't is understand, myself included all the time, kind of keep track of the many sort of tangled, brambled fines of the, of the, of the Vatican financial scandal. Sure. Well, we had a, a particular development um, this week which I will summarize as briefly as I possibly can. And then we can explore its significance in, in the most narrow and uncomplicated vein possible, which is what emerged this week. Um, and it started as a report in the Italian newspaper Domani uh, and has since been, as I understand it, uh, authenticated effectively, is that a, a letter was leaked um, bearing the signature of Cardinal Pietro Perlin, the Vatican Secretary of State, effectively pressuring the president of the IOR, commonly called the Vatican Bank, uh, to support and approve um, a loan of 150 million euros, which would effectively serve as a mortgage refinancing on the London building that the Secretary of State was attempting to purchase in 2018. Um, the letter was sent in March of 2019. So the Vatican sort of, if you like, took control and purchased the building at the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019. The exact date at which they took control of the building is difficult to establish because, well, the middleman they chose extorted them for control of the building, allegedly. Um, he has been arrested for that, though. Anyway, so, but what this does say is that um, previously the, the whole sort of cloud of confusion and weirdness and uh, technicolor criminality, to use a phrase uh, that one observer coined. Um, in the middle of all of this, there's been the constant presentation of uh, a narrative that says, well, if there were mistakes in Vatican financial dealings, if 
the Vatican's dealings with businessmen like Raffaele Mincioni or Gianluigi Torzi or Enrico Crasso were in some way disadvantageous to the Holy See, or if um, bad decisions were made or money was lost or investments were mishandled, this was something that was done at the level of you know officials. And maybe bosses should have been a little more vigilant. Maybe <coughs> um, you know bishops, cardinals, archbishops should have been a little more on top of the significance of all of this, but you know, it wasn't really their call. That's why you have officials. And what this shows was that Cardinal Paroline was actually very involved in this um, from a much earlier point than he had previously admitted. He, um, you know, when the, when the reporting on the London building really kicked off in uh, sort of October of 2019, Cardinal Paroline described the whole project as somewhat opaque, but that he was looking into it. Now it turns out that six months before that, he was actually writing letters pressuring the president of the Vatican Bank to bow to what he called the superior needs of the Holy See, which is give me 150 million bucks for this mortgage, please. Um, so that's very interesting. It, it, it Again, we've seen the sort of tide come in at the Secretariat of State um, of responsibility and implication in the handling of these financial affairs. And this is the second time that Cardinal Paroline has, uh, after initially distancing himself from sort of complicated and somewhat suspicious financial transactions, uh, emerged to have been playing a very active role in arranging them, um, usually through the pressuring of supposedly independent Vatican financial institutions like the IOR or APSA. Um, similarly, it was uh, a somewhat surprising story that I reported some time ago uh, that the whole business around the IDI hospital, which I'm not even going to attempt to summarize the details here, um, but what had happened was the, there was a loan made to support the Secretary of State's uh, for-profit financial investment in this hospital that had closed because of corruption and fraud. And APSA was not supposed to make commercial loans because it promised not to, to money vol. And as a result of that promise was exempted from financial oversight. Mm -hmm. And it later turned out that they had made this loan and they'd made this loan because Cardinal Paroline effectively told them to. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the second time that it seems that Cardinal Paroline has intervened to, you know, at least warmly encourage those in charge of independent Vatican financial institutions to support the more speculative and shady financial transactions of the Secretary of State. And this, I think, lends further um, credibility to a thesis we discussed last week, which is that Cardinal Paroline's department's mishandling of financial affairs has resulted in Cardinal Paroline's loss of influence and status in right. the Curia. That's right. You know, this is why it's exactly decisions like writing to Jean-Baptiste de Franzou and saying, I really hope you're going to recognize that when my department needs money, that's a preeminent priority for the entire right, exactly. Holy See and right. give me the cash. Yeah. Um, that it's exactly that kind of behavior that gets you, for example, removed from the oversight board of the IOR, which Cardinal right. Paroline used to sit on has, and, and no longer does. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think it's a very interesting way in which, you know, we've seen um, five officials and one former senior official at the Secretary of State be removed from their positions. Um, the Vatican hasn't officially commented on their fate, although I've seen reporting that suggests that two of the officials, and in fact, I've reported this before, uh, that two of the clerical officials have been sent back to their home diocese in disgrace. Um, I've seen recent reporting that suggests four of the, um, or some of the other remaining ones, particularly Fabrizio Tiribasi, has in fact been given um, early retirement. Hmm which is interesting yeah. and another one's been reassigned. But anyway, that we've seen, you know, these are the sort of frontline officials at the secretary of state get raided, suspended um, in at least two instances. They appear to have, if you like, turned state's evidence and are helping Vatican prosecutors. Then you saw Cardinal Becciu's resignation in September. And now we're seeing, if you like, the wave arriving at the door of Cardinal Paroline. And I think this is um, a fascinating and developing story. 
here endeth the monologue. I think so too. Ed, you know, there's been a sort of tight, there's been a sort of um, tighter and tighter sort of circumscription around Cardinal Paroline and, um, you know, have it sort of losing the checkbook, losing various positions. But uh, a lot of people have asked sort of, why does Cardinal Paroline remain Secretary of State, given sort of his, at, at the very least, close connection to these things? Well, I, take I, on that? I think for a number of reasons. The, the first is, uh, the, the office of secretary of state is not one that traditionally has a great deal of turnover. Right. Yeah. It, it tends to be the Pope gets, you know, inherits the previous secretary of state. If the secretary of state is an elected Pope, um, gives them a sort of year to gracefully age out and then appoints his own guy. And that's, that's your guy. That's mm -hmm. the one you have, you know, JP two had Angelo Sodano for better or for worse. Yeah. I'd argue more often than not for worse. Mm -hmm. Benedict the 16th had uh, Cardinal Bertone, who was very much a close friend, a uh, close personal friend of his. He made him secretary of state largely as a, you know, because he was, because of their personal relationship rather right. than Cardinal Bertone's aptitude um, or obvious or aptitude or qualification for the for role or integrity. And that was a, I would argue a car crash for um, that's right. the Benedict papacy. The biggest challenge of the Benedict, <clears throat> well, the sort of biggest continual impediment to resolving challenges, perhaps. I, and I would argue the the biggest single point of origin for many of the scandals that we're dealing with now, mm -hmm. uh, at least financially. <laughs> so uh, for Francis to remove Cardinal Paroline as Secretary of State would be a huge deal. So that's a sort of, if you like, um, cause of inertia that would have to be overcome for such a decision to be made. Secondly, I would argue that there's no indication that Cardinal Paroline has done anything um, gravely immoral. The situation with the IDI um, certainly looks to me like a, a knowing and deliberate violation of financial norms brought in by Pope Francis, and I think that's problematic. But, uh, you know, is it a hanging offense? I don't know. I don't think so. Think There's, so right, exactly. Yeah. I, I've seen nothing um, in any of my in any of my sort of research or investigation or reporting and nothing talking to anyone that suggests that Cardinal Paroline, Cardinal Paroline has been engaged in any kind of personally beneficial corrupt behavior or anything like that. And I have no reason to suspect it. I know um, of many people who are fierce advocates for Vatican financial reform, um, among them Cardinal Pell, for example, mm -hmm. who have spoken warmly of Cardinal Paroline and consider him to be, um, you know, a good and, and holy and well-intentioned man. Which so, sort of points to the complexity of this is that, um, the, yeah, the, 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 there are few, not none, but there are few sort of entirely black or entirely white hats in the story of the Vatican finance scandal. And far more frequently, I think, a story of a of an institution given to uh, an institution lacking the kind of um, the kind of checks, the kind of policies and processes, and the kind of mentalities that um, lead to good financial governance and financial accountability, rather than you know, I, people have said to me about various cardinals when, when Cardinal Bachu, you know, lost his uh, when Cardinal Bachu lost his job and was and was resigned from the rights and privileges of a cardinal. A number of people reached out to me to say, "Oh, I bet he's got millions stashed away, you know, um, in, in a Swiss bank account, or I bet he's got millions stashed away in the Caribbean or something like that." And I'm not convinced that that's true. I don't see any evidence of that. I I, I think. The, the motivations for these things and the way in which they happen is um, more complex and often I think a, a series of um, a series of blunders, a series of being taken sort of in or trusting the wrong people, a series of just um, wanting to solve problems and not acting according to sort of according to Hoyle, then um, then oh these people are just putting away tons of cash. Yeah, I, I'm always suspicious when people suggest that <clears throat> this or that Vatican 
bishop, archbishop, or cardinal must be, you know, on the take, insulting away millions in some in some slush fund somewhere. Because, you know, for why? Right. <laughs> you know, e- even cardinals uh, who have been found to have um, misappropriated funds, shall we say, Cardinal Bertone, um, and have gone on to be excused the sort of disciplinary measures and uh, legal proceedings that you would expect to follow, Cardinal Bertone, um, did so for nothing more ambitious than refurbishing their Vatican apartment. Yeah, that's right. That's you know, right. The ambitions don't tend to run higher in the material realm for most <laughs> Vatican cardinals, even those of, um, you know, the most questionable character than, you know, having an, having your apartment done up nicely and, you know, being able to live in quiet retirement in Rome and in, in a certain, you know, according to a certain standard. So, no, I, I, I have no suspicions at the moment of, uh, you know, Curio Cardinals sort of taking money for their own personal benefit. I, that seems an unlikely explanation for for much of the behavior we've seen. I think far greater is the is the temptation to institutional preservation and the throwing of lots and lots of good money after bad. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. Yeah, that's to right. try and spare um, oneself either professional embarrassment, one's department loss of status or influence. And to, you know, and this is something we've seen. And we, I, I mean, I know I've made this point that you, you cannot separate either in origin mentality or, or even sort of, you know, how they play out the sexual abuse scandal from financial right. scandals in the church, because they often proceed according to the same series of institutional temptations and reflexes. Yeah, and right. I think in the Vatican financial scandal, we, we will eventually come to understand that in many cases, um, a frank admission of mistakes of process and decision-making at the beginning could have stopped a lot worse from happening. And the desire to obfuscate or conceal uh, either individual misconduct or institutional breakdowns in, in behavior has caused the, has caused events to spiral. I, I think it's very possible. I think that's most likely as well. And with that said, we will be back next week with another episode of Tales from the Vatican Finances. But before we conclude our episode of the Pillar Podcast today, Ed, I did something. Um, and I did it because of your love for Gwen Stefani and the fact that you kicked off this episode with 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 no forewarning for me. You kicked off this episode with a bit of a Gwen Stefani discussion for which I was manifestly unprepared. So um, the tables have turned and it is time for Ed's Gwen Stefani moment for which he is manifestly unprepared, but for which I expect you to do very well because of your avowed, uh, your avowed fandom wait, of, uh, of Mr. Wait, Stefani. I, I, hang on. So I, we're I think going to play. fandom is really overselling the case here. We're going to play think... Gwen Stefani fill in the blank. I am okay. going to read you two lines of a Gwen Stefani lyric or maybe three lines of a Gwen Stefani lyric, and then you'll fill in the next line. Oh, this is going to be fun because if I get any of these right, I will genuinely surprise myself and I will well, be delighted with that. Well, the first one you ought to get right because you have you have told me uh, now numerous times, both in this conversation and in a conversation in the past, that this is uh, apparently an important song, not only in your life, but in the history of the American canon of rock and roll. So Ed, let's begin. Gwen Stefani, fill in the blank with this. Don't speak. I know what you're thinking. I don't need your reasons. So please stop explaining. Don't tell me because it hurts. Uh, yes. And then the next lines after that. Um, uh, don't speak. Don't speak. Oh, no. I thought you wanted me to do the second verse or something. No, no. Well done, Ed. You've gotten your work. Well, they far. can be inviting uh, is how the second verse starts, I think. But now it's going to get harder. Okay. So are you ready for question two in Gwen Stefani fill in the blank? It's going to get harder for you. Absolutely not ready, but let's do it anyway. It's not going to be hard for our listeners is what I think will happen here. A few times I've been around that track, so it's not going to just, it's not just going to happen like that. 
Is this because I ain't no holler Batgirl? Bingo! Well done, Ed. Two for two, and I did not think you were going to get that. And and those are literally the two Gwen Stefani songs I know. So this. Well, is... I think you may get this one. I think you may surprise yourself because you've surprised me, and you may be surprising our listeners with your Gwen Stef- the depth of your Gwen Stefani fandom. Ed, do you have a Gwen Stefani poster in your office? I do not. I mean, do you have a sort of Gwen Stefani jacket or anything like that? Because it turns out that you are a Gwen Stefani super fan, and I would not have expected that. What What is a Gwen Stefani jacket? Is this a thing? Uh, I don't know. In my mind, it was a jacket that you had that was maybe pink satin, and it had a picture of Gwen Stefani on the back. That was sort of the jacket that I was imagining you'd have. Ed, number three. I now want one of those framed in my office. Oh, just I want you to have one. Hilarious. And you may, that may well be the price if you can continue to do as well in Gwen Stefani fill in the blank as you've done thus far. Ed, sorry I'm not home. Right now, I'm walking into spider webs. Uh, oh, I don't. Um, sorry, I'm not home right now. I'm walking into spider webs. Oh, nope. sorry. So leave a message and I'll call you back from spider webs off the no doubt album that was the uh, album that they had. Uh, okay, this one should be easier and you can redeem yourself. Take this pink ribbon off my eyes. I'm exposed and it's no big surprise. Don't you think I know exactly where I stand? Nope. Sorry. (laughs) This world is forcing me to hold your hand because I'm just a girl living in it. Okay. Again, I told I told you up front I, that was not a no, song. No, I I think you I think what's happening now is you are a Gwen Stefani super fan, but you don't want it to be too obvious. So you're no, 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 no. I I'm that. perfectly happy for you know uh, strange little corners of my personality to, to leak out in this way. And if I was a Gwen Stefani super fan, you better believe I'd take great delight in rounding the bases on this one. I, I okay. Well, this one, whether you've heard it or not, I hope you'll be able to get it. Okay. Line one, woohoo, yeehoo. Line two, woohoo, yeehoo. Line three. Woohoo, you nailed it, Ed. Gwen Stefani, yeah. super fan, you from Gwen Stefani's recent single, The Sweet Escape. By recent, I can't remember, I didn't write it down, but I think it may have been around 2008 or something like that. Okay, Ed, here is a Gwen Stefani Blake Shelton duet. Oh, when you love someone, they say you set them free, but so go to the tribunal to see if it can be. <laughs> <laughs> so go to the tribunal it's canon 10953 <laughs> no but i wish that were it i preferred that to be it and so ed i am going to crown you gwen stefani super fan of this episode you didn't do rich girl i Thank like you. that's i could have oh you know I, what i forgot okay if i were a rich girl i'd have all the i don't know stuff <laughs> i didn't do rich girl you could have nailed it huh money in the world <laughs> If I was a wealthy girl. Okay. Well, anyway, Ed, I'm nevertheless crowning you Gwen Stefani super fan. I, I hope that you uh, I hope that you will put that on your resume. I hope that you will put that in your Twitter bio. I hope that everywhere you go. And you know what? Soon it will be time for us to order business cards for the pillar. And, uh, and rest assured that based upon your performance today, I will be recognizing you as a Gwen Stefani super fan on your business card. So congratulations, Ed. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> Sure. Uh, if you get me business cards that say Gwen Stefani super fan, I will hand those out. I hope so. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and a, a JD and Ed Double Album. Uh, I'm your host and the Pillar's editor-in-chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by Pillar co-founder and editor Ed Condon. This episode is produced by uh, our good friend, Dandy Agostino. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, leave a message, and we'll call you back. 
Don't tell me because it hurts. 